Hello beautiful and welcome to Finding Fertility. I'm your host Monica Cox from FindingFertility.co and I created this podcast to help get you to start thinking outside of the box and realize that your infertility might have nothing to do with your lady bits. Rooted in functional medicine and personal experience, finding fertility is all about looking at the whole body and finding the root cause of your infertility. Finding fertility does not diagnose, prescribe, or treat any issues of infertility, but what we do is take a holistic approach and improve your diet and your lifestyle to get you steps closer to creating your dream family. Just by being here with me, listening to this podcast, you're already going down the right path to making your dreams come true. Let's do this together. Happy Friday, all. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Fertility. I'm here with Michelle today, and she's going to give us the lowdown on one of my personal um hardest things that I had to conquer alcohol. So welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk with you. Yeah. So like really interesting, um, thing though, is that you actually are a fertility acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I would say like my day job is that I just stick needles in people to help them with their fertility. (laughs) I've been doing that for 12 years. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more science behind it, but yeah, it's basically For sure. what it yeah. is. <laughs> basically what it is. And how did you get into that? Um, I started, well, acupuncture is actually my second career. And I got into it because I had my own struggles with reproductive stuff. Um, I didn't have fertility struggles, but I had other stuff that I went through and I found acupuncture to be so helpful. And then also, I just think more people need to be talking about women's bodies and women's physiology because it's just something that's still kind of taboo to talk about in our culture. And I'm just really into talking about like periods and hormones and libido and sexuality. And so it just made sense to specialize in that. And then 12 years later, here I am. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, I know a lot of our, our listeners use acupuncture, reflexology, use those methods as um, amazing support. And um, I do believe in all the science behind it, but I mainly say it basically makes you slow the fuck down and sit for 45 minutes, which like you wouldn't otherwise. So like just the fact of that alone is amazing. A hundred percent. And I think the other aspect to it and different acupuncturists will run their practices in different ways. But for me, and this kind of bleeds over into my coaching, uh, my coaching practice as well is that sometimes a lot of the time, actually, when somebody goes to see their acupuncturist, they're the only person in their life that they really get into what they're going through with them. And so it's that conversation. It almost becomes like a counseling session almost where people can just come and spill all their stuff and cry and then lay on the table for half an hour and get up and feel relaxed after. So even that in and of itself is huge. Exactly. It's because just like um, my coaching practice, you ask questions that traditional medicine doctors, one, don't ask, don't know to ask, and actually don't have the time to ask. Like our intake forms, and I've done acupuncture, so I know your intake forms, they're very, um, sometimes can be embarrassing. You're asking Mm -hmm. really, you know, um, detailed questions about 
you know, yeah, sex and poo. <laughs> yeah, like, hi, I mindset. just met you five minutes ago and tell me about the clots in your period flow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, you just got to be real open. And I think that that opens even more doors, right? When you're vulnerable to allowing someone to come into these conversations, like you say, you don't have with anyone else. It's, I think it just builds a special relationship. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's something that I certainly don't take for granted as a practitioner. I feel so honored that I get to know people so quickly and so deeply because of the subject matter that we're discussing. And I just feel so privileged to be able to go on a journey like that with people. Yeah, exactly. So with your coaching, how did you get into the alcohol coaching? Yeah. So um, just to kind of give an idea of what I do, um, I'm an, I call myself an alcohol freedom coach. And what that means is that I help people, um, women, in fact, redefine their relationship with alcohol. And so for some people, that means that their objective is to quit completely. And for some people, it means that they just want to reduce the amount that they're drinking and feel a little bit more in control of what they're doing. And I help them do that through a program of cognitive psychology and thought work. And we work together to basically rewire their brain so they don't uh, get that craving for alcohol anymore. And the reason why I do that work is because that was my own story. So I wasn't one of those people who had my first drink in high school and I was like, oh, it's instant love. It was kind of a slow burn for me. And I ended up you know, realizing in my mid to late twenties that I was just drinking a lot, like a lot more than I should be. And of course, like so many of us, it was through therapy that I realized that my addiction was rooted in trauma. And it's something that we're kind of talking about more and more these days, but that's very much what it was for me. And so I was at this point where I was drinking about a bottle of wine every night. Um, Mm -hmm. but for me, it wasn't bad enough that I was getting these big rock bottom moments in my life. Like I wasn't going to work drunk and my husband wasn't like cleaning up my vomit every morning and my kids weren't getting taken away and my family wasn't staging interventions. And like my, on paper, I was highly successful. I was this Mm -hmm. acupuncturist and I owned a clinic and I was creating jobs for other women and I was helping thousands of people better their lives. And I had this amazing family and the kids and I was doing really well, but inside I was just totally consumed with this shame and the self-doubt and the what's wrong with me and the, am I an alcoholic? And, you know, why can't I get a handle on this? It was just a daily grind of like being hungover or beating myself up because I'm hungover. And it all kind of came to a head at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. And so what happened was we were about, I don't know, three or four weeks into COVID and my level of self-medication, like so many of us just kind of went to this next level. So no, not only was I like drinking a bottle of wine every night, it was also, I was eating three cupcakes and binging on Tiger King and like just doing everything I could to cope with the stress of what was going on. It was just like this huge, like next level comfort measure, self-soothing, buffering, numbing kind of situation. And it almost kind of became this meme that everybody was just doing that because we were all just like, what the fuck's going on? When is this going to end? Oh my goodness. And I think a lot of us caught on pretty quickly that this just wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. And so I kind of had this conversation with myself where I said, well, I either need to just 
lean into being okay with doing what I need to do to be comfortable in the moment and stop beating myself up about it. Cause like, I would do this every night and then I would wake up the next day and be like, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. Like you're a healthcare practitioner. You should not be doing all of these behaviors. You should know better, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I need to make a choice. Either I need to just stop doing that like stop talking to myself that way and just have compassion for myself that this is what the world's going through right now, or I can, you know, make a change in the other direction. So I decided to to stop drinking and it was actually in a therapy session with my husband and we weren't working through anything major. We were just looking to improve communication. So we were going to couples therapy together and, and he made the statement and it was, I think I like you better when you're not drinking. And I was like, Oh, I think maybe I like myself better when I'm not drinking as well. So after that, it was kind of this windy path of therapy and reading lots of books and finding people that were doing what I wanted to do and just like looking at what they were doing and figuring it all out. And then I find life coaching and and coaching tools were really kind of the thing that sealed the deal for me that helped me take everything, everything to the next level. And then I ended up in this place where I was like, wow, I haven't had a drink for a year. I've had all this bad stuff happen. The world is still on fire and I've managed to not have it have to drink to cope with all of this. Mm -hmm. And my life is more amazing than I ever could have imagined. There's just so much space in my brain. And I really want to help other people, mainly people like me, you know, high achieving women who look great on paper, but are tortured on the inside. I want to help other people do the same thing. So I got certified as a life coach and now I'm helping other people do it too. Oh, it's um, such a story that I think so many people can relate to um, because I come from a family of functioning alcoholics. So that's mm-hmm. like what term I use, right? Um, and um, yeah, especially my mom, she's still a functioning alcoholic millionaire, right? Like she has the life and- Um, it was interesting when I was going through my fertility issues, obviously I had to get sober, right? Like, and not just sober, but like really ask myself because my issues stemmed from my gut. So I really had to focus on healing my gut. There's plenty of studies out there that show even just one drink messes with your gut microbiome. So that was my focus. And that was like my big shift to really get off of drinking, but it also comes back down to the mindset. And I had to keep asking myself, what's more important? Do you want a family or do you want to drink? And sometimes the drink was more important, but, you know, like really talking to yourself um, about it. And so I was sober for, uh, well, two, two years, you know, with our pregnancies, you're sober, right? Breastfeeding, those type of things. And I always thought like, I got it, man. I've done it for a year. Like drinking's done. Like I can like control the habits. I'm not going to be this like, um, like person who has to have a drink at five o'clock, you know? And then I moved to Hawaii with two little kids and you're like, well, I'm on a holiday. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to drive you know, I'm not going to get like so intoxicated where like, um, I can't deal with things, but even a bottle of wine or even like three beers every single night starts slowly adding up and you get back into those habits. 
And especially when you like, you know, I got to a peak of health where I restored my fertility, got pregnant naturally. I don't have an autoimmune issue. I don't have um, symptoms of my, um, I had an ulcer at 17. You know, I wasn't getting those issues. I was feeling good. My, my cognitive function was like excelling. And um, when I got back into drinking and obviously stress levels as well, because they're all associated, like you could dramatically see the impact in your own um, ability to function, right? So yeah, you're high achieving still, but you know, you see that you're like fumbling your words, you're not clear on your message, you know, like just so many little different things. And um, I think this thing that you were saying too about doing it, waking up and having that guilt. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. Like a, There's like nothing like spiral. that. Spiral. Yeah, it's it's the shame spiral mm-hmm. that happens the day after, and in which inevitably leads to more drinking. Yeah, at least it did for me. It was like you're sh- you're feeling the shame all day. What's wrong with me? I can't get a hold. I can't get a handle on this. Am I an alcoholic? What's going on? Do my kids know? Do my, does my husband know? Is anybody noticing? I should be doing better. Like we all have this kind of perfectionist fantasy that we could, you know, do everything perfectly. And then, you know, by the end of the day, you can't stand it anymore. And so you have another drink to take the edge off. Yeah. It's totally me too. Um, with the trauma, because um, I think this is a big thing. It's part of like my practice as well of like getting um, down to the root cause of why you are functioning the way you are. Why are you type A? Why do you lean towards food? Why do you lean towards alcohol? Like, um, why aren't you making sleep a priority? You know, why are you a workaholic? And so obviously, you know, the research points to your childhood traumas. But for people who like myself, and I think a lot of people move through this, and that's why there's so many questions with millennials of like, well, we had a pretty decent childhood compared to like our parents or grandparents. We weren't, for most of us, we weren't beaten. We weren't sexually abused. You know, like we didn't have the raging alcoholic parents. Um, Why, what, like, where's this trauma coming from? Like, I don't have these big traumas. Did you find when you started unpacking your trauma, like, was it like, what was it like for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's a a really big question with so many answers and it's all going to be individualized. And so, you know, to speak for myself, um, I would say that I always recommend that if somebody has, you know, like capital T trauma Mm -hmm. in their life, um, that they seek professional help from a therapist or a counselor before they attempt to do any kind of like coaching or stuff on their own. Like there's kind of a minimum baseline that you need to get to before you can like move forward in in any kind of extra way. So like, that would be my first statement right there that if somebody has an ongoing PTSD or some kind of trauma response, that's, you know, creating pathology on an ongoing basis that they look to resolve that with a therapist first. And so I will say that I did therapy for years. And so I worked on that for years with my therapist. But the thing about therapy is that it's really great at kind of diagnosing pathology and getting things back to a minimum baseline, but then to kind of take things to the next level is a bit of a different conversation. And that's kind of where I think a lot of us are, where 
we're highly functioning and we look great on paper and we've achieved a lot because us high achieving type A millennial women are really good at just like having a goal and grinding it out and making it happen, even if we're feeling kind of internally tormented. And so the idea that we can, you know, get there, but we still know that there's something kind of missing, that we could be taking things to another level, that we could be living our lives in a different way and producing different results. Like that's kind of the arena that I work in. And again, to go back to all those kind of little behaviors that you talk about, all those over those overisms. So over drinking, overeating, overworking, over Facebooking, over online shopping, over use of pornography, like any of those behaviors that we use to kind of numb out and, and buffer. I think at the root of all of that is just that we're really not great at feeling negative emotions at the end of the day. Like mm-hmm. we're really not well equipped in our culture to process those things. And I think there's also this combination with external messaging that we get, especially as women, that according to the perfectly curated Instagram influencers out there, that we should be living these lives that are picture perfect, that look just so that, and we're getting this very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? We're getting this very selective view of people's lives. And I think that makes people think it kind of gives them this subliminal message that if they're experiencing anxiety or self-doubt or fear or any kind of emotional pain, that something's going terribly wrong. And we've taught our brains that the quickest, easiest way to deal with that is just to have a drink or eat a cupcake or buy something online to make that feeling go away. And that's how the habit is created. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think for me is like, I kind of understood why I got into alcohol because both of my parents were alcoholics, but they're both smokers and I never got into smoking. So I was like, well, maybe that's not the reason, right? Like, mm. and I think when I start when I started unpacking things, it was this underlying um, self-love and self-worth. Mm-hmm. And it obviously stems from all the small traumatic events I had growing up and the way that I was spoken to as a child, like, you know, like, don't whine, don't cry, don't show emotion. Um, And yeah, like, you know, our parents did better than their parents and, you know, we're very grateful, but still they had a lot of shit to clean up themselves that they never got to. (laughs) And um yeah, I just found that it definitely is a habit, like a physical habit, you know, like you want that feeling in your hand, the heavy, you know, the drink, the ice, the wine glass, whatever that is, the cigarette in your mouth. Um, but then it's that, you know, the self-love and the self-worth. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not worthy to have everything I actually want, even though I look good on paper. Like you say, I can have a better life, meaning not more money, not the perfect IG account, not the perfect career, the happiness, like the just pure love and self-worth in me and Mm -hmm. being able to be present. Because I think that's a part, some of part of the alcohol where you, you drink to kind of get away, right? Yeah. You drink to numb um, the boredness. Or, mm-hmm. or the irritation or yeah 
Yeah. And you don't want to necessarily sit in it because like you say, it feels uncomfortable. But um, yeah, I, if I, when I got real with myself, it was very hurtful, right? Like what? I don't love myself. What? I don't think I'm worthy enough. So therefore I need to like numb it out every night. Like, yeah, yeah, it's harsh. It is. And I would say the antidote to that is a couple of things. The first one being just understanding where it all comes from. I mean, I tend to come to this work with kind of um, an intersectional feminist perspective. And what I mean by that is recognizing the conditioning that all of us have, especially as women or other marginalized communities. And so that would be things like, for us, for example, people who are socialized as women were explicitly and implicitly taught from a very young age that our inherent worth comes from a our ability to please other people with our looks mm-hmm. mostly the opposite sex and also our ability to have children our mm-hmm. ability to reproduce like those are kind of the two things that women are that make a woman inherently worthy is those two things and it's kind of subtle and insidious but it's everywhere mm-hmm. in our culture And I think we're really waking up to that message and we're kind of starting to say, actually, I don't buy that anymore, but that's definitely a deep part of our conditioning. And so if we can see that for what it is, we can start to experience self-compassion. Like, of course I feel unworthy. That's the message that I was told my entire life. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is, well, what do I want to do with that? How do I want to think about that? How do I want to process that? It's going to be different for everybody. Yeah. I think too, like, like you say, when you're in high school or even college, if you start drinking, then, um, no one loves it. Right. Like it tastes like shit. Like, like no one's first drink of alcohol they could say was like, Oh, this was glorious. I loved it. Right. Um, and it was just like the pressure around you. Like if you didn't drink, you weren't cool. And, um, it just makes me think of like, it like it breaks my heart for like all the like all of us girls who were there that were hanging out with other broken girls other girls who were insecure and didn't feel the love or the self-worth and yeah a lot of it get it just like manifests into a big shit show and this is what I think um happens for a lot of women with their reproductive health they're not just they're trying to get pregnant but their periods their thyroid health and all that is not only are you throwing yourself into um a gut health issue with the amount of drinking but the impact of all that negativity and low self-worth and so low self-love is just emotionally draining so instead of refocusing all that on healing we've put it into our work. And yeah, a hundred percent. We got That's, that's my client to a T, yeah. you know, like it's just, yeah. you know, we're, I think it, it also comes from this, what I call a rival fallacy, which is a term that I used for one of, from one of my teachers, Carlo and Thiel. And it talks about, she talks about this idea that as kind of modern high achieving women on a mission to change things or help people or just to achieve in general, we have this idea that 
if we just do enough things, if mm-hmm. we just get enough gold stars or get the promotion or get the education or meet the husband and have the kids and have the house, or I don't know, win a Nobel peace prize or get some other really high achievement in your individual field that if somehow if we do all of these things, then, then we will be able to consider ourselves worthy of love, worthy of self-love, worthy of self-appreciation. But we also exist in a culture where it's, there's just never enough. The to-do list is endless. There's always going to be something else to achieve. And so really the key is just to decide that you're enough in that moment, because you're never going to be able to do your way out of that feeling of inadequacy. You just have to kind of look at actually my self-worth doesn't come from things I'm externally doing. It has to come from within. Yeah. And I think, especially if you're, when you're dealing with fertility issues, obviously the whole, am I worthy of being a mother comes into it. And I'm definitely a poster child of your children aren't going to make you worthy. Mm-hmm. right? Like if anything, they're going to expose where you feel lack even more. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's a very slippery slope and, you know, we always try to encourage people to get to a certain point of that self-love and that self-worth before the children, you know, like yeah. you are worthy with or without, and that's a huge conversation within fertility. Just like you said, because we're conditioned that one of our main roles is to produce and be moms. Yeah, 100%. And we're going to pause today's clip and make it a double episode. So I hope you are enjoying this conversation that me and Michelle are having. And tune in next week to listen in to the second half. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Finding Fertility podcast. If you're loving this podcast, please leave us a rating and review and let us know how this podcast is supporting you to get steps closer to creating your dream family. I hope you have a beautiful weekend and we will see you next Friday for another episode of the Finding Fertility podcast.